Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects the value of Native art by restricting non-Native imitations. That also helps buyers know what they're getting. But what more could the law be doing? That's the question Congress and federal officials are pondering. There's momentum for including Native Hawaiians in the same protections, and at least some tribes will like to see limits on state-recognized tribes. We'll find out more right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. King Charles has now had his official coronation as the British monarch, but a couple of days before the ceremony, he met with several of Canada's Indigenous leaders. More from Dan Karpinchuk. The audience at Buckingham Palace included the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Roseanne Archibald, the Métis National Council President, Cassidy Caron, and the President of the Inuit Tapirit Kanitami, Nathan Obed. The three, along with Governor-General Mary Simon, attended the coronation on Saturday. Simon is the King's representative in Canada and the first Indigenous Governor-General. She said that Charles appeared to be committed to reconciliation during his meeting with Indigenous leaders. The meeting lasted for about an hour and focused on Native issues, but also included conversations about the environment, repatriating cultural items from British museums, and missing and murdered Indigenous women. Inuit leader Nathan Obed said he talked to Charles about shared priorities as well as the responsibilities of the Crown. Uh, so I invited him to come to Inuit Nunangat to uh, learn more about uh, not only the governance but also a lot of uh, the issues that we face, whether it be the environment or climate change or mental health, education, and um, just continue on the conversation, ultimately getting to a point where we could have shared priorities. There have been calls in the past for the British monarchy to apologize for the wrongs of its colonial legacy, but the Indigenous leaders said their meeting was more about building a positive relationship that could set the stage for tougher future talks. The King had met with Canadian Indigenous leaders a year ago during a visit to Canada. In a speech in the far north, he said he was deeply moved by stories from residential school survivors that he met. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. A blow to the largest Native organization in Alaska. Two major tribal organizations have pulled out of the Alaska Federation of Natives, the Central Council of Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes, and the Tanana Chiefs Conference. AFN was formed to fight for land claims more than a half century ago and has continued to serve as a powerful voice for Alaska Natives in both state and national politics. Every October, it holds the state's largest convention. But in a statement, the president of Clinkett and Haida, Richard Peterson, said the tribe no longer needs AFN's advocacy and has developed its own capacity to advance its causes. Clinkett and Haida says it's the largest federally recognized tribe in Alaska, representing 35,000 members in southeast Alaska. The Tanana Chiefs Conference, which represents villages in interior Alaska, also issued a statement. It said it was ending its membership with the AFN to focus on salmon protection. It said numerous resolutions have been passed at AFN over the years to protect the Alaska Native 
subsistence lifestyle with little action. AFN is made up of both tribes and native organizations formed after the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Its president, Julie Kitka, told the Anchorage Daily News she would withhold comment until after AFN's board meeting next week. In the last three years, disputes between regions have arisen during AFN's annual convention. Three regional corporations have since pulled out of the AFN. The Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, Doyon, and the Aleut Corporation. ASRC is the state's wealthiest private corporation, and Doyon is Alaska's largest landowner. U.S. House Natural Resources Committee Ranking Member Raul Grijalva is hosting a discussion on the history and significance of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Tuesday's roundtable is being held as ICWA is being challenged in U.S. Supreme Court. The decades-old law is intended to keep Native children with Native families. The virtual roundtable is featuring advocates, law experts, and a tribal leader. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. This Father's Day, you can give your dad a truly unique gift from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy sitting in for Sean Spruce. The U.S. Department of Interior is taking comments from the public about potential changes to the more than 30-year-old Indian Arts and Crafts Act. One proposed change would include Native Hawaiians under the act's protections. Other proposals would allow non-Native labor on artwork in some instances, and there are ideas on stepping up enforcement for those passing off Native American works. There are also calls for further, uh, there are also calls to further restrict who can claim their work is authentically Native American. Today, we'll get some perspectives on how the Indian Arts and Crafts Act could work better. We also want to hear from you. What concerns do you have about uh, protecting the authenticity and value of Native arts and crafts? What would you like to see be changed in this act? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Oahu, Hawaii, is Dr. Sylvia Hussey. She is the Chief Executive Officer for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, and she's Native Hawaiian. Welcome to Native America Calling, Dr. Hussey. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for uh, joining our show today. 
So uh, Native Hawaiians are not recognized, uh, federally recognized, the same way tribes are here. Um, are there currently any protections or assurances for arts and crafts that are authentically Native Hawaiian? Well, I would start first with the concept of, regardless of the federal recognition status of Native Hawaiians, overall, the United States government has a trust responsibility to all indigenous people, and that includes Native Hawaiians who have a different governance structure. Um, so first and foremost, uh, Native Hawaiians advocate that the United States has a trust responsibility to all indigenous peoples. Second, on the uh, issue of uh, protections, currently we sought to protect ourselves through the adoption of the Paukolani Declaration. It's a declaration that was born out of uh, 2003, a convening of the Native Hawaiian Intellectual Property Rights Conference. And even back then, over 20 years ago, the declaration was designed to assert our self-determinative rights over traditional cultural expressions. So many of the Indian arts and crafts um, tenets and beliefs, we absolutely support and broaden the understanding that these are protections for indigenous peoples to protect the knowledge, the practices, the materials, the use, the purposes. Um, so very much, while we are not included, we absolutely support the tenets of the act and also uh, support the expanded draft um, for uh, inclusion of Native Hawaiians. Right, right. So, um, so, so what would these protections under the Indian Arts and Crafts Act look like? Um, or, or what would some of these revisions um, look like? Have you, have you seen the draft of this, uh, uh, this new Indian Arts and Crafts Act? We have, and we've provided our feedback to the Senate uh, of Committee on Indian Affairs in terms of the specificity of our um, observations. Uh, what that protections would look like with the same protections, the protections of um, not only the ideas, the artisans, the materials, the, um, uh, the, those pieces, but also the ways that they are done. In Native Hawaiian culture, uh, the, what we now or what Western considers arts and crafts were highly utilitarian. Um, the mats that were woven, the gourds that were fashioned. So what Western considers arts and crafts was not arts and crafts to Native Hawaiians. They were highly utilitarian. They were used in daily life. They were used for all of those purposes. And so protections of that would be the protections of the ideas, the methods, the uh, genealogy or history of that and the utilization of it. And then Unfortunately, in Western context, the monetization of that knowledge, we have situations where there are Native Hawaiian looking like um, that are coming from overseas marked as Native Hawaiian and then priced below, um, priced at a price point that does not value the origins and the craft and the ability, uh, what goes into it. And so monetization is a hot topic and those kinds of protections are also uh, we made comment as to that 
Okay. <clears throat> and uh, this draft is called uh, The Amendments to Respect Traditional Indigenous Skill and Talent um, Artist Act of uh, 2023. And um, the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs is looking for uh, public comment uh, for the next um, month, a uh, couple months or so. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, uh, and, and uh, one of the amendments would be um, including Native Hawaiians. So uh, why haven't uh, artist protections for Native Hawaiians come earlier? I, based on my understanding on federal law and top of mindness, if you will, our Native Hawaii, our Native American um, citizens in the continent have been far more top of mind with the United States government. Um, the Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian, who are also, um, you know, Native Indigenous peoples, but also the Western context of the 49th and 50th state, so I will say it has not been top of mind. In this policy period of inclusion and broadly looking at all of the policy pieces, inclusion of all Native people, regardless of whether they were in the continental 48 or in the additional states, should be included and in looking for overall consistency and parity for all Indigenous groups under the United States uh, trust responsibility. Okay. And how do you see um, artists uh, distinguish themselves as authentic uh, now, you, you know, um, current Native Hawaiian artists? How do, they, how do they identify themselves and their art? And, you know, how, what does that labeling look like right now? What we see are artisans who have uh, a deep genealogy of their work and craft. Mm -hmm. Many of them, their practices are based on their own family experiences. They come from families who have always integrated the use of plants, the use of um, uh, animals, birds, the bird feathers. So the crafting uh, also has a root in ali'i um, or, or royalty um, for that, but also the craft itself, whether it is canoe, uh, making, whether it is um, kappa or the cloth, um, the utility of that, the designs, the materials, as well as the tools that are used, each part of that has its own genealogy, its own practices, its own uh, root of knowledge that comes from their own family experiences and their community experiences. So for Native Hawaiians, as we observe, those are the roots of what distinguishes um, that knowledge, applied skill, and many, of course, are on stages where of, of high fashion as well as the broader world stage. So they're taking very traditional um, thoughts, patterns, and putting it into a very modern context of styles and applications. Um, but at the root of all of that is this historical family cultural basis of study, research, reflection um, that marks a, a artisan, um, a Native Hawaiian artisan who's approaching that from a Native Hawaiian perspective versus copying and then applying. 
Got it. So uh, would you expect a significant monetary difference for Native Hawaiian artists if they were included in this uh, most recent version of the act? I would expect a, a differentiation of monetary, not just for Native Hawaiians, but all Native crafts. For example, if um, we have the kukui nut lei um, here, it is a candle nut uh, lei that has a um, uh, the candle nut itself. Um, artisans uh, will polish as well as string that into a garland or lei to be worn. And every time an artisan puts their effort into that, we say that that has mana, that power that transfers into it. And that's why that artisan piece is much more valuable than a commercially, for example, that is produced off, um, off the island or without that ike, but is mass produced. Um, they will paint as an example um, of flower and then sell it in Waikiki for, you know, uh, as a kukui nut lei next to a kukui nut lei fashioned by an artisan that's taken over time. So not just for Native Hawaiians, all crafters, that price point should reflect. So if you, the tourist, want to pay $2 for a, you know, plastic lei with, um, nail polish flowers on it, you're more than welcome to do that. However, an artisan crafted, mana-filled, thoughtful, planful, as well as the amount of aloha that is put into that piece that's carried on by that artisan from their family, from the land, from that, that should definitely have a value that's distinctly different. And that's just not for Native Hawaiians. That's for all of our um, Indigenous people that mm. mana that is put in that should command a different price point and we shouldn't apologize for that right awesome thank you for that uh, so we're going to go to a break right now uh, we'll be back with uh, dr sylvia hussey from uh, the office of hawaiian affairs we're talking about amendments to the indian arts and crafts act uh, you can join us after the break In some Latin American countries, going against major mining corporations or drug cartels to protect indigenous land is very risky. Human rights organizations are appealing to countries to crack down on threats and murders. We'll talk about the indigenous activists who are putting their lives on the line to save their homes and cultures on the next Native America Calling. Service. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. 
We're discussing federal law updates to protect Native artists and craft people. If you have a comment or questions uh, that you'd like to contribute to our conversation today, call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post on our social media pages, search for Native uh, Native America Calling on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'd like to go back to our guest over in Oahu. Uh, we have Dr. Sylvia Hussey, Chief Executive Officer for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Hussey, we were just talking about uh, monetary values of Native Hawaiian art. How important is, um, or, or how, how big of a piece is Hawaiian uh, arts and crafts to the whole um, economy there in Hawaii? I think like anything, um, arts and crafts as an economy is an emerging creative economy that um, the Western context is recognizing as an economic engine. But we've always had artisans. We've always had those who... Um, were known to be in the community to be carvers, uh, healers, uh, as well as artisans. And what we want to recognize is that this, well, yes, this is a way to provide an economic, um, you know, to support your family. As important as that is also the preservation of ideas, preservation of process, preservation of practice, the use of plants and animals and the skill that is required in addition to the knowledge that is being passed on from practitioner to practitioner in families. So while the Western systems want to recognize the monetization of such, um, we are really trying to preserve and balance both uh, as well to preserve the practices but also to ensure that our artisans as well as our practitioners are not, you know, ripped off from uh, Western systems that um, have concepts such as intellectual property um, as a concept and a, a legal construct. So trying to balance that is always uh, something that the Office of Hawaiian Affairs is trying to advocate for and we are looking forward to participating in a working group that the state legislature um, just uh, did put together in a resolution in how to protect Native Hawaiian intellectual property in various forms. All right, got it. All right, um, I'd like to uh, bring in another guest here um, from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Chief Hoskin. Andy, thank you for having me on. It's good to be on with you. Yeah, good to have you on here. Uh, you've been very vocal about this issue here, protecting uh, Native arts and um, uh, cr artists and craftspeople. Um, so, so, you know, what is your chief concern when it comes to limiting protections to only federally recognized tribes, especially federally recognized Cherokee tribes? 
Right. Well, just as a as a broad overview, I mean, I look at this as, as probably a once-in-a-generation opportunity for us in any country to affect positive change on the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. There's a, there's a number of provisions that could be improved upon, and, and I know your show's touched touched on those, and the, and the Senate Indian Affairs Committee will be uh, has been soliciting information on that. So we should look at this broadly in a unified way as a way for Indian country to engage. But I think the particular mission that I am on, that I am just bound to be on, is to make sure we eradicate uh, the protection afforded to fake tribes, and I'm talking about uh, state tribes that are codified in the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. I mean, right now, there are three federally recognized Cherokee tribes, and there's a host of tribes that are set up as corporations claiming to be Cherokee. And, and Andy, it's not just Cherokee, although Cherokee is, of course, my foremost concern. These are not tribes. These are organizations that are posing as tribes, and they're stepping into the shoes of tribes uh, for a variety of purposes, uh, and some of which uh, touch upon history and culture uh, appropriation. But some of it is monetizing what it means to be a Native American in this country. Some of it is taking advantage of the very important, uh, although modest, truth and advertising protections that already exist in the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. And so to see one of our great artists, a great basket weaver, uh, say Mike Dart, one of our Cherokee National Treasures, have his creation alongside somebody from, say, the Four Winds Cherokee of Louisiana, which is as phony as a $3 bill, that's offensive to me. And I think Congress needs to change the law to make sure that we uh, honor those who are uh, members of federally recognized tribes. Right, right. And and so there you know, we've we've done uh, plenty of shows on uh, tribes that have um, gotten federal recognition. Um, they've been caught in this uh, bureaucratic process uh, for federal uh, recognition. Um, you know, are, are you looking to I mean, would you like to see just all unrecognized and state recognized tribes be excluded from the Arts and Crafts Act? Or is there a way to kind of include some of these tribes that are maybe just caught in this this process and, and you know, on their way to federal recognition? Well, first of all, the, the idea of being on the way to federal recognition is an interesting concept. Uh, there's a process in place for that. It's a, it's a highly rigorous process. There's a great deal of scrutiny. Um, I don't think the fact that there are tribes in different stages of that process uh, is justification to tolerate the fact that the current law allows demonstrably fake tribes to step right into the shoes, and they're, they're paid members. These are usually paid memberships. Step right into the shoes of a Native American artist in this country and, and enjoy the protections of the law. So in other words, the fact that there are some tribes that are, or some organizations that are asserting federal recognition, that should not be what dictates protections for Native artists in this country. It should be the opposite. Uh, Native artists should drive that. And so as, as organizations become tribes through what is a really rigorous process, when they achieve that goal, they can enjoy the protections of federal law. Uh, until then, uh, we can't let... Um, uh, that dictate the process because I do, do think it undermines what it means to be a Native American in this country. Okay. All right. And and how does the, the Cherokee Nation of, of Oklahoma and the other two federally recognized tribes, if, if uh, you could comment on that, um, how, or at least how do you guys on um, in Oklahoma make sure that uh, artisans who are, um, you know, at your local uh, powwows and arts markets, how do you make sure that they are um, authentically Native American? Do you have control over that? Do, do individual tribes have control over that? 
We do. I think it's an exercise of sovereignty. So we have our own artist protection uh, laws and support. And so when we have art shows uh, and galleries, uh, we you know we do uh, uh, require the appropriate documentation. In fact, we recently uh, expressed legislatively that not only should we recognize that someone is is Cherokee, but specifically what nation. I mean, we're three independent, although related uh, Indian nations: the Cherokee Nation, and then then the two bands, the uh, Eastern Band and the United Katua Bands. But each each of us are worthy, I think, of our artists having their individual recognition. So we're even fine-tuning that uh, at the individual artist level. Uh, none of this is perfect. I mean, the law shouldn't be judged by whether it's perfect or not. The, jaw, the law should be judged by whether it's effective. And I think our law at the tribal level is effective. I think federal law could be more effective, and I think that's what we need to do in this country, is seize an opportunity to uh, make sure we elevate uh, the voices and the creation of Native artists. And we can't do that as long as we're tolerating uh, artists who can pay $45 to join the Achota Cherokees and get a card and then uh, market their wares as authentic Cherokee art. It's not fair to the consumer. Uh, not fair to uh, Native artists, uh, but for our part, uh, and I can't speak for the other tribes, although they're very rigorous on this subject, uh, we do police uh, that activity because we think it's of high national interest. I've called upon our citizens, uh, by the way, to, to join leadership in this effort, and, and I can happy to report that as of, as of today, we've had 900 citizens in 24 hours respond to our call to call on the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs to change this law. So we are engaging our citizens at the grassroots on this effort. Andy. All right. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, enforcement of this law, you know, on the federal level, um, it, uh, you know, we, we see stories every now and then of uh, the uh, feds cracking down on um, certain galleries, certain artists, and uh, we see fines handed out and maybe even some uh, probation or, or even jail time. But we don't see that all the time. I mean, we, we hear a lot about how this is such a, a, a big problem in in uh, Native America, um, do you do you want to see more enforcement? What other kind of uh, changes uh, do you want to see to uh, this Arts and Crafts uh, Act in, in in the future? Well, there does need to be more rigorous enforcement, and I think that's true of any law. It's only as good as uh, as it's enforced. And in this country, I think uh, unfortunately it uh, demonstrates the value that the United States places in the law when we don't see it rigorously enforced. So I think the United States uh, ought to do more. I think we can keep the pressure up. It doesn't have to be legislatively. It can be at a policy level. It can be with the Department of Justice uh, and Interior. And I think tribal leaders, including myself, ought to uh, give give some voice to that. I also think, you know, as we are developing an Indian country, our own uh, laws to enforce this. I think we uh, do our own, um, you know, investigations, or we do our own uh, prosecutions to the extent we have jurisdiction. And we also take that to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and we say, look, we've got evidence of uh, of a violation of federal law here. So, uh, as as always, we can't wait around in Indian Country for the United States to do the right thing. We've got to press them to do it. Could there be some things legislatively to? sharpen the law in terms of enforcement. There absolutely should. That's why I think this is a once-in-a-generation in a opportunity. So I think everything that Indian country would like to see change for the better in the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, now's the time to do it. You know, we've chosen our particular uh, priority issue, which is to eradicate uh, fake tribes from protection, but uh, we certainly would uh, lend a hand to uh, to sharpen the law in other areas. Okay. 
All right. Um, you know, speaking of being uh, very vocal, there are uh, the five tribes of the Alabama Tribal Alliance, uh, none of which are federally recognized, uh, sent a letter to the Senate committee saying they are no less native than those that are federally recognized and their art is important to who they are. Uh, what, what do you say to that? Well, art is important to everyone, and I think that the, the uh, members of those organizations which pay a membership fee should continue to create great art. They just shouldn't call it Indian art any more than their uh, leaders uh, should call themselves chiefs. I mean, I, I've looked at their letter, and, and this is a list of uh, uh, you know fake chiefs of fake tribes, uh, and uh, it's difficult to tolerate that. Uh, but I do take the letter serious because it's a continuing of the muddying of the water in this country of what tribes have gone through uh, and what it takes to get recognition and also how easy it is for a 501c3 to set up and call itself a tribe, name its leader a chief, and then avail itself of hard-fought gains we've seen in federal law. So I'm not going to tolerate, I'm not going to indulge these kind of letters. I'm going to push back on them every single time. All right. All right. And what would your uh, what would your advice be to um, artists who are are, you know, um, in, in this kind of situation? I mean, they they believe themselves to be native. They are um, working on art that uh, they believe is is part of their lineage and heritage, uh, but they're not uh, federally recognized. I mean, what would you what would your advice be to um, uh, individuals, individual artists? is to continue to create. I mean, we need uh, more beauty in this world, and it needs to come from all corners. I think do it in an authentic way. I mean, I take joy in seeing someone create something that uh, brings in a Cherokee a culture, imagery, different art forms that we have. To me, that's a celebration of Cherokee culture. We need more of that in this world, and I think that's true of other tribes. Uh, just don't inauthentically call yourself a Cherokee. Be proud of who you are. Be proud that you're giving uh, some additional life to a beautiful culture. Uh, Know that many people, myself included, the chief of the Cherokee Nation, welcome that. As long as it's done in an authentic way, uh, I'll be a fan and a champion of these artists. I want them to continue to create. Keep in mind the Indian Arts and Crafts Act is not about whether a person can create or not. It's whether they tell the truth or not. And I think we ought to be telling the truth and be honest when we're talking about uh, being a member of a tribe in this country. Yeah, it's a, a truth in advertising uh, law. Um, so r- right now, the amendments to respect t- uh, traditional indigenous skill and talent, the Artists Act of uh, 2023, what we're talking about, the amendments to the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. So right now, it doesn't have a part um that, uh, you know, that um, addresses federal recognition. It doesn't include what you're talking about. Um, How much momentum do you see for making those changes that you're suggesting? Well, I think we've gained a lot of momentum in the last couple of months. I mean, we started raising this issue publicly a couple of months ago, uh, privately and among uh, artists and activists. We've been talking about it for some time in anticipation of this law. So I'm encouraged by the fact that, look, in 24 hours, over 900 Cherokee citizens went to what we call our Gadugi portal. That's on our website, Cherokee.org, Citizens Access Programs and Services there. Over 900 people heard the call to write the Senate 
just I'm talking in the last 24 hours, and they made their voice heard. We've engaged the artist community in the Cherokee Nation to write letters. We've been in the media. Uh, these things don't come easy. Uh, these things take grassroots advocacy. Honestly, the most important voice in all of this are Native artists in this country. Uh, my voice is, is, is much less important than theirs, but I'm going to lend my hand along the way. So it's true right now we have a legislative vehicle that potentially could in- embrace this important change in federal law. There's no language that's been inserted, but we're not going to stop until uh, until uh, we finish this process because, again, this is this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity in my view. All right. Uh, when will we see a decision from federal officials on this? You know, I think it's fluid. They've changed the deadline, which is which is a positive. I mean, initially the deadline was, I think, a month ago, and I think the deadline has been changed to in May in terms of soliciting information. That tells me that this Senate Indian Affairs Committee is listening, and I think that's a positive, uh, and I appreciate the engagement. I've had good relationships with the, on a bipartisan basis with the committee members, uh, Chairman Schatz and, and, and Ranking Chair Murkowski in particular. So they are genuinely open to a dialogue. So I couldn't tell you what the deadline is. I can just tell you that we're going to run hard nonstop until until we either achieve victory uh, or if this opportunity passes us by, we'll continue, but I don't want to see uh, this pass us by. So I can't tell you the deadline, but we're just going to keep running. All right. Uh, so who else um, shares your viewpoints? Have you um, heard any other tribal leaders uh, share this viewpoint of yours? Absolutely. So last month, as we do every quarter, the uh, leaders of the uh, five tribes in Oklahoma, five of the largest tribes in the country, representing, I think, somewhere on the order of 800,000 Native Americans in this country, uh, met. And this was a topic of discussion. Uh, the idea of state tribes and fake tribes uh, is always on our minds. And that's the reason we have mm-hmm. multiple resolutions on this subject. So we've already expressed our opinion on it. Uh, but the tribal leaders of the five tribes all agree that, uh, look, if you, if you want to be a if you want to have the protection of federal Indian arts and crafts law in this country, you ought to be a member of a federally recognized tribes. We agree on that. We're the biggest tribes collectively in the country. We're speaking out. We'll be back after this break. Are you the digital media specialist that Vision Maker Media is looking for? The digital media specialist implements Vision Maker Media's public relations strategies and deploys successful digital media campaigns that align with Vision Maker Media's mission and vision. Information on required qualifications and how to apply at visionmakermedia.org. Vision Maker Media supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're wrapping up our conversation about updating protections for Native artists. If you have a comment or question, you can still join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to bring in our uh, last two guests here. We have uh, Rachel Cushman from Eugene, Oregon. She is the tribal secretary, treasurer, and member of the Chinook Indian Nation. Welcome to Native America Calling, Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel Cushman. All right. Thank you for joining. Uh, We also have Dr. Joe Candillo from uh, Jefferson, North Carolina. He is the owner of Authentic Native American Arts, and he is Pasquayaki. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Joe. Thank you so much, Andy. Happy to be here. 
All right. Thank you for joining as well. So, um, uh, Rachel, I want to go to you. Uh, the Chinook Indian Nation um, was once federally recognized uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, and then that federal recognition was uh, rescinded. It was taken away. Um, you know, what, what, uh, what is the, st the status now of the Chinook Indian Nation? Um, so the status of the Chinook Indian Nation is that we're still uh, seeking clarification of our federal status. Mm -hmm. As you said, about 21 years ago, the Chinook Indian Nation, 22 years ago now, the Chinook Indian Nation was federally acknowledged under the Office of Federal Acknowledgement process. Um, we were not getting a fair uh, read of our application, so the Secretary, the Assistant Secretary of the Interior at the time sent our, our application out to Indian law experts the Indian law experts and, and the assistant secretary was an Indian law expert himself, made a final positive determination of recognition that asserted that we met all of the requirements. Um, it was at the end of the Clinton administration. So uh, there was a turnover in the appeal process, the turnover of administration in the appeal process. And 18 months later, we had that recognition rescinded explicitly because of politics. Um, the person that made the decision wasn't an, an Indian law expert. He was an engineer. Mm -hmm. um, so right now we are we have a lawsuit that is uh, one of the claims is that the BIA's rules for repetition, uh, not not allowing repetition, is uh, arbitrary and capricious. So that's under review currently. Mm -hmm. We also are working on our Chinook justice campaign for a congressional bill to recognize our community. Okay. All right. And, uh, you know, just before the break, we were talking to um, Principal Chief uh, um, uh, uh, Mr. Hoskin uh, Jr. Uh, and he, you know, is, is very much in favor of... Um, you know, uh, excluding all state recognized, any unfederally recognized tribes from this Indian Arts and Crafts Act or uh, the um, uh, the the one that's being the draft that is being uh, discussed by the public right now. Uh, what is your what is your response? Um, you know, you're hearing him talk about how, uh, you know, artists uh, shouldn't be protected if they don't have federal recognition. What's your response? Um, I think that that uh, limiting it to federally recognized tribes is a problem. There are multiple definitions, legal definitions of American Indian, and we qualify uh, as Indian under many of those definitions. And I'd also like to say, if we're Native enough for the government to drag generations of our folks off to boarding schools to be abused, three generations of my family went, or if we're Native enough to have IIM accounts and lands and trusts, or if we're Indian enough for the Bureau of Indian Affairs to have a fiduciary responsibility to our people or to win land claims, then we sure as hell ought to be Native enough to have our art protected under any revisions of this law. And I'd also like to draw our attention to the United, United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People. Federal recognition does not bestow sovereignty or indigenous identity. Federal recognition is the codification of the relationship between the nation state and indigenous nations. 
We get our sovereignty from the land and our ancestors. And under the UN's Declaration of, Indig- of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Part 3, Indigenous peoples have the right to practice their cultural traditions and customs. This includes the right to transmit their historical languages. Part 4 declares the right to establish their own media. Part 5 declares the right to maintain and develop their own political, economic, and social systems to be secure in the enjoyment of their, their own means of subsist- subsistence and development and engage freely in all of their traditional and economic activities. Part 6, Article 19, declares that Indigenous people are entitled to the recognition of full ownership, control, and protection of their cultural and intellectual property. Got it. All right, thanks for that, Rachel. Um, let's go over to Joe. Uh, Joe, what is your, um, your, your response to what we heard from uh, Chief Hoskin? Hi, uh, yeah, you know... I think um, as a person who owns and operates a Native American art business, I've been in the business for uh, over well over 20 years, um, tribal citizen, federally recognized nation, of course, and, and I really go out of my way to um, find authentic Native American artisan. I think that there are certainly those folks out there who legitimately are of Native ancestry and uh, – uh, who and, and there's there's probably state uh, uh, groups, uh, state recognized groups that do have some legitim- legitimacy as well. I think what's so sad to me is that the fraudulent groups of people are are um, in a sense uh, they're, they're impacting the the authentic people. So you have the uh, folks that are, are are conducting fraudulence and creating these fake tribes, who are actually impacting, um, you know, uh, people who are legitimately of native ancestry and who are legitimately native peoples. And uh, the unfortunate part is that when you allow the, when when these um, when these folks that are legitimate advocate for their rights, they are actually helping to protect the fraudulent groups of folks as well. I have my business in the eastern part of the United States. I have been I have actually spent most of my years of life in the eastern part of the United States in areas where Indian removal occurred and I can definitely what Chief Hoskin said really resonates with me as an Indian arts uh, owner of a business um and living in the eastern part of the United States where many of uh, Chief Hoskin and other eastern woodlands peoples were forcefully removed by the Indian uh, Removal Act and then seeing this vacuum filled with these uh, corporations that are posing as indigenous nations with no uh, genealogical or historical legitimacy, and then friending a state politician and then ultimately getting state recognition and allowed to make Native American arts. You know, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act is fundamentally a truth and advertising law that is supposed to prohibit the misrepresentation. Uh, of the making of Indian arts and crafts products in the United States, and plain and simply, you know, if that law is not allowed to do that, or if there's a loophole or a porthole where a fraud can occur, that's a real problem, and I definitely see it happening. Uh, I feel it happening in the sense that the market is being flooded by um, individuals who are creating these works and saying that they are um, you know, real native peoples. I have clients who uh, they they are serious collectors of Indian arts. They are you know spending you know 
$12,000, $15,000 on daggers and things that are made, uh, and they want provenance. They want things to be um, made by authentic Native American artisans, and they are telling me that they that their level of confidence is really, really being um, – um, impacted negatively that they used to rely so heavily on the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, but that they've come to you know, understand that there are loopholes and, and that people are actually getting through. So, um, you know, I think that those folks who are um, of legitimate Native American ancestry should not really fear um, this type of change or, or this, these amendments that, uh, that may that may try to bring attention to um, groups of, of state recognized people who are not authentic, because you know you have your documentation, you have your legitimacy in, in order. I, I think that if, if nothing else, there needs to be some form of of, of criteria that is in place for uh, state recognized groups. Uh, who are coming into this um, where it can be shown historically and genealogically that they are indeed of Native American ancestry or are uh, a legitimate entity. Thanks for that. Um, let's let's uh, go to a caller here. We have a anonymous caller in Gallup listening on KGLP. Hey, go ahead. Hello. I just want to say that we are relying too much on government laws, uh, institutional laws. It has to stop uh, us Native people. We have to begin to advocate ourselves and stop relying on people. Um, over 20 years silversmith here in Gallup, we made these uh, foreigners, Anglos, and Islamic people rich because we don't own our own businesses. We don't do our own things, and we have to stop relying on the government and on handout to prosper. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that uh, anonymous caller in Gallup. Um, uh, so, Joe, uh, you know, um, kind of kind of building on that conversation of, uh, you know, not relying so much on the federal government and, um, you know, uh, how how do you what other ways do you think, um, you know, need, uh, tribes and uh, especially entrepreneurs um, could, uh, you know, make a better environment for uh, native artisans and, and really have that control to weed out uh, who's not a part of their own community? Sure. I think most fraud uh, that I'm aware of occurs outside of legitimate tribal communities. Um, you know, I do occasionally see, uh, and I sell to museums who are looking to um, replace items that are repatriated or wanting to do an exhibit. Let's say, for instance, and they want a specific item. Um, unfortunately, I'm seeing that uh, some of these um, museums, instead of like traditionally, would go into a native community um, and would collect, like uh, we're talking about uh, during the era of the Smithsonian ethnographers, some of the greats, the 1800s, where they would go into native communities, established native communities, and they would collect Native American arts. Well, nowadays, it's sometimes museums don't have those resources. Well, they will um, just look online. They'll do a quick search online, and they'll find a Native American flute maker or something of that nature, and they'll just order whatever item and to put in their displays. So I've gone into museums and actually seen, unfortunately, items that are supposed to be representations of Native American material culture, 
you know, our tribal histories, our legacies, our ancestors. There's things that are sacred to us, the land, and it's been disconnected from, in my mind, from Native peoples and those communities because these items are being made by non-Native peoples. And it's just really hard. It's hard for me to see that. I think it's very unfortunate. Um, so again, I think that most of the fraudulence that I'm aware of actually occurs outside of the tribal community uh, of, or of a legitimate tribal community. Usually tribal communities keep uh, citizenship roles, and they're pretty aware of kind of who's in the community. Of course, there's uh, outliers and urban Indians. Of course, a lot of us today are urban Indians, but hope that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks. Um, I'd like to go back to Rachel. Uh, what are your thoughts on relying too much on the federal government to dictate authenticity? Uh, does the Chinook Indian Nation deal with uh, fraudulent fraudulent art? Um, we don't have the issue that these other colors have. Um, we don't have, you know, the issue of folks claiming our identity and selling our art. Chinook and art is on the brink of erasure, and we're working hard to keep it alive. Uh, Chinook has a wholly unique style of art. Some folks have referred to it as organic geometry. The art radiates from our homelands at the mouth of the Columbia River, and, and it does affect many of our neighbors. But there is a, for listeners, if folks are interested in knowing what Chinook and art looks like, there's a chapter in the book, Chinook and People of the Lower Columbia River, that describes it. It's unique and needs protection. Um, if a time came that our artists weren't protected in identifying their art as native, it'd be another step toward genocide by the United States government. Not only would it be cultural genocide, but it'd be economic genocide. We have several artists that make their living by Chinook and art. And ultimately, um, if galleries, purchasers, uh, if there is a law that requires them to um, check citizenship, we welcome them to go through a process of verifying uh, Chinook citizenship through our enrollment office. If there's a question about Chinook artists, but we don't have a formal certification, although it has been discussed and we have, um, our tribal office has issued tags to prove connection. Um, bottom line, federal recognition cannot be a determiner. Uh, the fact that 52 years ago, 25% of the tribes in the Washington state and 75% of the tribes in the state of Oregon were said not to exist in the eyes of the federal government proves that Indian country is a work in progress at best and every All right. Um, we uh, just lost Rachel there. She was uh, getting into it. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, so that um, is unfortunately the, just the end of our hour here. Um, I'd like to say thank you so much to our guests we had on Rachel Cushman. We uh, just heard from her a second ago. Um, Dr. Sylvia Hussey, Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. and Dr. Joe Candio. Join us tomorrow as we take a look at the ongoing threat to indigenous environmental activists in Latin America. I'm Andy Murphy. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, 
protecting tribal sovereignty and keeping dollars in Indian country are Ameren's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Ameren.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.